Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. All right. Hello, everyone. Um, I just wanted to introduce myself. My name is Patrice Reyes. I am a eighth grade U.S. history teacher in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I'm here to interview Peter Lee, Dr. Peter Lee, on his new book. And um, Peter, I just wanted to welcome you to our interview. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank uh, you for having me on. Okay, wonderful. So first, can you share a bit, first of all, tell us what the title of your book is um, and how did you come up with this project? Well, my book is From Dead Ends to Cold Warriors and it focuses on the immediate post-war years after World War II from the context of childhood. And um, it ends actually right when the Cold War begins. So it's actually not really a Cold War study. It's, um, it's this weird nebulous magical moment from 1945-ish to 1947-48-49, right when the Cold War starts. It, the book actually grew out of my dissertation. Um, in my original dissertation idea, I was going to talk about um, childhood in the 1950s. I was going to lean heavily on the James Dean stuff, the Marlon Brando, the rebel without a cause mm -hmm. type motif. And I was talking to my dissertation committee and they suggested that many of the themes that we see in the 1950s in terms of youth unrest and um, rebelliousness, the juvenile delinquency scare had its origins in earlier time periods. We see it during um, World War II where there's a, fear of juvenile delinquency. We definitely see it in the Great Depression and we can even project backwards into the 1920s with the lost generation. You know, that we're, with every decade, with every new generation of Americans, there's always this anxiety over youth. And I started thinking about the continuities between these time periods. Um, I guess for American history, because the way we have to divide it up to teach it or to study it, we generally divide it into blocks, you know, World War One, the 20s, the Depression, World War II. And um, we generally kind of miss seeing the continuities between these time periods. When children grow up, they start influencing their own children. They start thinking about terms of family and, and obligations and that sort of thing. So that's basically how my dissertation grew out um, in terms of looking at continuity between the 1930s and the 1940s and how those anxieties informed Americans who grew up during those formative years um, into the 1950s and how they ended up trying to shape their own lives, their own children. And it eventually coalesced into what we call the Cold War and anti-communism, but it had, a, it had its origins way before, um, you know, the Berlin Wall, way before the Iron Curtain speech. Um, even before um, Nazi Germany fell. 
Wow. This is a really fascinating project. Even for me as a, as a middle school teacher, um, teaching a U.S. history survey, it's um, such an in- incredible moment that even my curriculum does not cover, right? So I'm, I'm very much, this is near and dear to my heart, so I, I'm really excited about this project. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, in terms of your, your dissertation and this, what came out of this book, how did you define the ages around childhood? Because, you know, I teach middle schoolers. They call themselves teenagers. Um, but at what point are they, at what point are kids just kids or childhood or teenager? Do those terms come up? Like, how do you define this childhood that your project is focused on? Um, well, originally, when I was thinking about doing the James Dean stuff, and I was defining youth by what... Um, people of the time period of the mid-1950s defined as man-children, you know, grown-ups who actually grown up in terms of age but had this mm-hmm. childhood mindset in terms of being um, rebellious and non-conforming and disrespectful to parents and, and things like that. And um, it actually didn't really fit because, um, you know, James Dean and Marlon Brando, they were in their mid-20s and approaching 30 when they when they did these iconic roles. And even though they were role models for children, they weren't actually children themselves. Um, during this time period, children were kind of defined as this awkward age that um, the term teenager wasn't really in vogue yet. They were um, they were described as adolescents. Um, but it was also this, this formative time period in which um, they were grown up in the sense that, you know, they wanted to find work because of the background of the Great Depression and World War II, they wanted to contribute to their families, but they were also encouraged um, to stay in school, to um, to not necessarily have fun and 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 be kids and have this youth culture that we think of in the fifties with toys and games and and, and things like that, but um, to be to prepare to be good citizen soldiers in that respects. Um, so for my project, I started to conceptualize t- childhood um, probably around 11-ish to 17-ish, which is fits the um, contemporary definition of the awkward age. I, I didn't want to talk about children who were like five or six years old, although that stuff is, is very fascinating in themselves, um, because those children were, were basically, you know, of primary school age, and they weren't really cognizant of these ideas about race and gender and the international picture and, and you know, ideas about what they wanted to be when they grew up and, and all of these ideas that haven't yet um, come down upon them and, and which will come down upon them when they become adolescents. Wow, that's such a fascinating part of the the study because, um, you know, looking back on on child labor, for example, which was definitely a problem of the Gilded Age, a late, well, much of the 19th century, really, um, where children went to work as young as six years old, seven years old, um, and no one really interrogated whether or not kids had a sense of themselves at that age. They were just well, this is what the family needed, so you would be put to work. There was no sense of, do they have a sense of who they were and what they wanted to be when they grew up? Did they have any of those thoughts? So I'm really happy that you are interrogating that because, of course, um, we kind of take it for granted 
today. So how did your, the sources that you use to shape your study, you know, tell us more about the, the background, the historiography. You kind of hinted at it a little bit, um, but give us an overview of the historiography of childhood. Well, um, the lens of my project for From Dead End Sukkot Warriors um, was centered on film. And film history has somewhat neglected films that center on childhood, um, the family film, so to speak. Um, there is some historiography on, say, like Shirley Temple in the early 30s. Um, there's a lot more sources about um, about more contemporary time periods, um, especially like today where, where um, but anyway, um, right. the family film has generally been neglected and um, some of the bigger box office names of 30s and 40s like Mickey Rooney or Jackie Cooper, um, they have been completely ignored in most respects by historians and by film scholars. Um, and there's really isn't an interest in youth in film until we get to the mid fifties with um, with James Dean and the juvenile delinquency pictures, and um, you know the teenagers fighting monsters and and, and those sort of things, um, the young Frankenstein stuff. So there's this gap in terms of film history about how to study how to approach childhood and especially how to approach boyhood. Um, there has been some stuff done on girlhood in terms of the broader historiography, I think, in terms of young women who, young girls, um, young women who wanted to not fit within the domestic model of the 1950s, you know, the housewife, the June Cleaver model. And there are sources in that, but in terms of, in terms of boys, um, they were expected to be, you know, future businessmen, future heads of households. They're supposed to fit this patriarchal culture of, um, of being citizen soldiers. And there was a gap in the historiography. Um, well, there, there's a, there is a growing number of studies about masculinity in the 1950s, about homosexuality, about, um, about the rise of fears of men in suburbia and that sort of thing. But in terms of films, it's been pretty limited. So I wanted to approach that type of model um, going into, into um, my book, into my dissertation and into my book, um, where um, boys would become this lens of seeing the formation of manhood, the family unit, approaches towards race, um, approaches towards internationalism and communism. So you're not really focusing too much on girls in your study, but more so on boyhood, childhood for young boys. Yes, That's boys it. around um, 12 to 17-ish um, in my study. That's not to say that girls weren't important. You know, there definitely is a lot of movies about um, girls growing up and in yeah. these types of films too. But for the purposes of, of my dissertation, and to basically narrow the topic so I'm not examining hundreds and hundreds of films, um, I, I chose to focus on boys. Exactly, wow. And I, I, for some reason, as you're talking about it, I was just thinking about um, Huckleberry Finn and, and hmm. Tom Sawyer, <laughs> all other um, you know, iconic figures in American literature and about boyhood necessarily from um, the late 19th century. And 
you know, I was just kind of curious if you saw any echoes of those, um, I guess those icons of what boyhood looked like, if it's, if it changed by the time you're talking about the 1930s into the early 1930s into like 40s before uh, the Cold War really set in. Well, there, in my book, I do discuss some pictures such as Stars in My Crown, which is, which glorifies this idealized small town ethos that um, is very much centered in American culture of, you know, that we don't necessarily see any kids on rafts like Huckleberry Finn or, or painting fences like Tom Sawyer, but they do, um, they do support this idea of an eternal small town, you know, a very close-knit culture where everybody knows each other, um, where they deal with outsiders, or at least they're suspicious of outsiders. And in this time period, though, um, it's different because, you know, the small town is, is changing. Um, cities are growing larger, um, urbanization is increasing, and there's more concerns about things that, um, that are coming from the outside, especially topics of race, um, you know, and this is mentioned in Huckleberry Finn too, it's very much centered in the story, yeah, um, but race becomes this, this social force that, um, that pretty much collides with small town values and everybody has to reconcile with this force in terms of whether to change or not to change and how to deal with that. So, so there's this type of, um, this glorification, I guess, of, of small town values, of the origins of Americana rooted within these very small nucleus um, communities. Right. And, you know, as a, anyone who thinks of the 1950s, you'll always think about, you know, the tree-lined streets. You think about the burgeoning suburbs. You think of Leave it to Beaver, you know, these, these ideas and these images, Pleasantville, all that, um, you know, that part of that consensus era and the conformity era. Um, mm. How do you also incorporate, you know, some television and um, into your study? Because you're talking about film history, which, of course, means big screen, the big studios like MGM. Um, how does that you know, what does your study say about like television and where some of these images of boyhood also proliferate? Study actually ends before the growth of television in American households. You know, television was around since 1930-ish, um, but it doesn't really rise up until the mid fifties, which my, which my story is, my book is, is ended. My book ends in like 1950 with um, films like I am a communist for the FBI. So I really don't really talk about television, but um, from what I understand of television history, that there is this, there's this desire among audiences, especially in suburbs to see themselves pictured on 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 the screen especially in their own homes and there's this I mean that has I think has constantly been there throughout um, film history mm -hmm. but um, definitely in the 1950s where there are growing suburbs and um, there is this ideal of women staying at home and baking cookies and, and well. taking care of the kids and dad going to work and that right. sort of thing and they want to see these this consensus culture mirrored 
on television and yeah. projected back towards them as the norm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the, in the um, late 40s and, and um, in film history, the studio system is slowly starting to decline because of um, some economic and political decisions, Supreme Court decisions that broke up the studio's monopolies and um, breakup of mass urban centers for film audiences. But there's the, there are other um, types of genres in film that we might not think of in early television, um, such as film noir or mm-hmm. uh, musicals and, and, and cartoons, well, not cartoons, but, you know. Right. Um, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of other um, media as well. Um, and as you're talking, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded, of course, that the study is centered at the beginning of the Cold War. So can you talk more about what's happening geopolitically and how did that affect this idea of childhood and how did, um, you know, the boys between 12 and 17 experience and think about themselves within this Cold War context? Well, I argue that the Cold War was not a foregone conclusion. I mean, I I think that historians... um, we sometimes suffer from a little bit of 2020 hindsight in terms of saying, well, the Cold War broke out because of blah, blah, blah in 1947-48. So it was a foregone conclusion that, you know, everything would have led to that moment. Um, And I think it's a very presentist reading of of history. Um, I think people at the time um, were caught up in this unique moment in that they weren't quite sure what the future would hold from them. I, I think Americans in 1945, 46, um, they just came out of a devastating, you know, World War II global conflict. Um, they just came out of the Great Depression, which was very much um, a fear that the, the depression would return once the wartime boom ends and and soldiers start becoming demobilized and, and things like that. Yeah. And that these fears that they knew from the past impacted the decisions that they made in the present. Um, That these children who grew up in the depression and came of age in World War II, they wanted to provide security for their own families. You know, um, there was, as you know, there was a a rush to get married before, um, during the war as as soldiers began to enlist. And there was the baby boom that began shortly after the war ended. And and there was this um, necessity for security and um, psychological stability that domestically informed the way that families wanted to provide security for their children. Right. And there's, and I think that is in the most part where this consensus culture, this domesticity ideal came from mm-hmm. in the 1950s, but it grew out of traditions um, from their own backgrounds in the depression and World War II. Um, and certainly the international picture didn't help either, you know, because yeah. of, um, you know, the atom, the fear of the atom bomb, the um, the Soviet question as to what Stalin was going to do next, you know, now that Germany and, and Japan have been defeated, yeah. um, there is this question as to what the United States' role is going to be in the post-war world, you know, are we going to return back into isolationism? Are we going to become the world's greatest policeman? All of these different ideas are reflected in films, um, sometimes in in terms of just dialogue, you know, mention about the United Nations here and there, 
or um, a throwaway line about war orphans in, in Germany or in France or something like that. Um, but it's very much on the minds of, of people who made the films and certainly of the audiences who watched them. I, I mean, in terms of just the political economy of Hollywood, which I go into a little bit in my book, um, there is the idea of the Soviet Union, the Iron Curtain closing off the eastern half of the of the film market in Europe. You know, so there there is very much this um, big question as to as to what the future will hold for for Americans in this in this formative period. Yeah, I mean, hey, Hollywood was a business. I mean, go talk about the golden age of Hollywood. Um, but we, uh, we forget the structure of the studio system was very unique. And mm. you went in a little bit about HUAC and how the House Un-American Committee impacted that, with, with, impacted the studio system. Um, so how did this, now shifting into the anti-communism part, how did that affect the kind of works that the studios were now outputting as they're seeing their political economy change? Well, to be to show off their patriotism, to definitely make, make sure they weren't towing the communist line, um, many of the studios began producing these very polemical, over-the-top anti-communist films. Um, I end my book with I Was a Communist for the FBI, in which the child character who is I think he's 16, but when the film ends, he's like 18, going off to join the Navy. Um, he realizes that his dad, you know, posed as a communist because he was a patriot at heart. And then he has to do his part to um, fight enemies abroad by joining the military. And it's very over-the-top patriotism with um, with um, Battle Hymn of the Republic playing in the soundtrack. and a lot of teary-eyed um, emotional close-ups and things like that. A lot of flag-waving. Um, and, and, um, and, and it's a kind of interesting, actually, and I don't really talk about this in my book, but films like I Was a Communist for the FBI initially had this surge of popularity, you know, that, that um, it affirmed the American way and and um, patriotism at home and, and all of that. But as time progressed, you know, a lot of these over-the-top um, polemical anti-communist films actually didn't do very well at the box office. I mean, people just grew tired of them. And I think that's something that has to be kept in mind um, going forward when we discuss culture, um, such as film history or um, through, or textual readings of books and and magazines and, and things like that and and other forms of visual culture is that producers may have one in type of intention, but audience reception is is often fragmented and audiences are fickle. And um, just because we read these great messages in in the films and we gain great insight into how people um, thought and behaved during that time period, it doesn't mean that people of the time period actually behaved that way or they accepted those messages or that they might have just rejected them and said, you know what, um, this is dumb or or I don't believe this or this makes no sense. Um, and that's something to look out for, I think, in terms of audience reception and trying to reconstruct a time period. We have to um, keep an eye on 
you know, these messages that aren't just floating out into the ether, they're meant to be consumed. And sometimes they're not consumed the way that we want them to be. Hmm. That is such an amazing point. And I think there's so many instances that we can see even in modern politics so modern a modern context where there might be a message being made through a film and then how people receive it are completely different so the irony of course is that these polemical works you know hollywood was putting out um during anti anti anti-communism turned out to have the opposite effect people just got tired of it which is very fascinating to me um, how do we know what audiences' reactions were, especially when we t- were talking about these boyhood films? You know, do you know, were you able to kind of um, discern what their responses were to these ideas about childhood? Well, their res- audience responses are always diverse. And um, one of the fears I had when going into this project was that I might miss you know, I might miss the forest for the trees type of thing. Um, Absolutely. But one of the primary sources that I look at is, um, is, which is actually very useful for film history is exhibitor reports in terms of um, how theater managers reported that um, audiences responded. I mean, I think we have to remember that before the age of the multiplex where, you know, one theater can show every film that's being produced under the sun, a lot of these, theaters in this time period only had one screen or maybe two screens. And um, they might be allied with a particular studio and just show that studio's film output. Or if they were independent, they had to um, book their films in advance. And in order to, um, you know, and since they only had one screen, you know, if if, if they pick a flop, you know, a box Mm -hmm. office bomb, and they're going to lose money for the duration of that run. So um, to help each other out, Uh, managers would often report to each other in various um, trade journals, such as the Motion Picture Herald or Box Office, um, what their audiences thought of the movies. And um, they would sometimes give direct responses as to, you know, this was a great film, everyone loved it, they clapped up the end, to, oh, only five people showed up and, you know, I had walkouts and this was Mm -hmm. terrible and, (laughs) and, um, and, and so so. I mean, there were basically helping each other out as um, um, in hopes that, you know, that they would also be able to pick out winners in the future. And it's um, not, as I say, you know, there's very much, there are very much divides in terms of audience reception. Small town audiences, for example, hated musicals, um, or they didn't understand these great sophisticated um, psychological dramas. Um, because they found them confusing. Whereas um, people in, in big cities, they might respond to small town films differently, or they might respond to foreign films differently. So there's very much audience divides in terms of geography, in terms of demographics, um, in terms of race, definitely. Um, whereas in some films, African-American, that you know, theaters that cater to African-American audiences might report one thing, and then um, that might, be different from what other larger theater venues might report. I'm really glad you mentioned that because I was going to circle back to this idea of race that you also introduce as you are going about your study. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, how did, I mean, was, how was race represented on screen in many of the, the films you looked at? Um, and then how do you think 
these fragmented audiences reacted to those um, race themes? Well, for childhood, it's actually it's actually complex um, in that children, and I don't want to overgeneralize, but children can sometimes be colorblind in the mm-hmm. way that adults are not. Um, there are, I, I mean, the classic example would be Shirley Temple, who um, dances with um, Bojangles Robinson um, mm-hmm. in several of her films, you know, and, and she was certainly colorblind to that respect, and that she did not recognize that her dancing partner was a black servant. She he was just a dancing partner. There is this type of, I don't want to say equality, but there is this tolerance and acceptance among children in terms of race that was not present with adults in films. Um, the Our Gang example might be one of the most easily pointed to examples where we can say, you know, the children have this semi-quasi-equal society um, where, you know, Farina and Buckwheat are, right. are semi-equals um, right. in which they wouldn't be in, in normal in, in, among adults. Mm-hmm. So there is, there is that type of representation on, on in film. Um, and children are also malleable. There are films such as Intruder in the Dust in which a white boy has to confront the racism in his small Southern town and he eventually becomes a champion. He's the hero of, of a story where he saves a, um, an older black gentleman from being lynched basically. Um, and he goes this coming of age transformation um, idea, but you know, there's also, at the same time, Intruder in the Dust was a box office flop because a lot of um, adults, so. yeah, a lot of adults who, who would go seeing this film would reject that message. Mm-hmm. Wow. That, I can see why you're, I have a, a profound appreciation for your project, Peter, because it sounds like you're weaving together all these many different threads um, through one lens of childhood, but you're not necessarily getting, you know, a very concentrated response, right? You're not getting just one, oh, here's the answer, or here's a, a conclusion that you can draw. In fact, you're drawing multiple conclusions throughout this work. Um, Thank you, yeah. It's, hats up to you. Um, I don't know, like, what what else did you want to contribute to this this complexity that we haven't covered? Like we covered race, we covered the communism, anti-communism, um, the the box office system. Um, what other you know threads were you pulling at here? I mean, what else? I mean, it sounds like a lot. Well, I end my I end from dead ends to cold warriors with, um, I guess with the message of my own. Um, my book was published in 2021, you know, and and as I was writing my dissertation and defending it, and then revising it into a book, we were played out against um, the Trump presidency in the background and um, ideas about toxic masculinity and the whole idea of making America great again and going back to the 1950s. And and those ideas, and I don't want to be a presentist and that I don't want to say there is a, you know, a direct line between the past and the present and that, you know, and that there is only one direction that we can go in. Um, But those ideas about, you know, toxic masculinity and a glorification of manhood in the 1950s, um, it 
informed the way that I conceptualized the project. Um, I began thinking about, how can I say it? I began thinking about how these various threads that Americans were grappling with um, coming out of the depression or even out of the 1920s, um, coming out of the World War II, entering the Cold War and um, trying to raise their own families and trying to just survive basically. Um, wow. How these various threads created this consensus culture and how that Americans today, some Americans today look back at that consensus culture with nostalgia without really appreciating or understanding a lot of the angst and anxieties that lay in, in the foundation of that consensus culture and which those anxieties are perpetuated today. Yeah. Oh man, there's just so many ways in which we talk about um, toxic masculinity and what and some of now is you know men's rights groups for example right is a, re, a rejection of this you know modern more um, inclusive society that we have been we said we we're working towards as, as Americans um, but there is pushback and they are using um, these ideas from the past to justify you know a lot of these um, these fringe ideas um, and I'm, as a, I'm a teacher, uh, right, for middle schoolers, but I teach all girls. So um, I'm very fascinated because I don't know a whole lot about teaching little boys at all. Um, and I just wanted to know, you know, what, what what's the difference do you see between this? How do you spell out the difference between childhood then and childhood now, at least from your standpoint at the part at this point in your in your project? Um, well, I think there's a misnomer in American society where people say, oh, childhood was simpler back then. Um, mm -hmm. And I think they're referring to the technological differences. Yes. Um, but in terms of the way society has changed, um, I think there's a lot of continuity um, mm -hmm. between the present and the past in terms in the past, um, especially the time periods where I'm looking at, um, children are beginning to learn to duck and cover, for instance. Um, right. There's this growing anxiety throughout American culture about um, race and the definition of what it is to be an American. And um, there are, um, I didn't talk about this um, in, I don't think I really talked about this in the book, but even in moviegoers of that time period, they were looking back at older films from like the 30s and the 20s and 30s um, when these films are being revived in theaters. And they some of some people would comment on how how outdated some of these concepts were, even though they're only 10 years old. Um, only even five years old from World War II about how race relations back then were embarrassing, um, mm -hmm. about how society has grown so much um, and that these films are very much relics of the past, you know, even though they're from their own past, um, they're right. only a couple of years old. But, you know, World War II and, and um, really 
accelerated change, I think, in American society. And after World War II ended, there is this concern as to where do we go from here? Um, and I, I think people, I think when we talk about childhood of today and we compare it to the past of yesterday, we, we are looking at the past in terms of a consensus culture. Um, the leave it to beaver images that linger in the American consciousness. Yeah, yeah. And there is um, forgetfulness or maybe ignorance of, of, of deeper um, angst that grew out of the depression, that grew out of World War II. And um, that there was, there was always a fear about change. Mm. You know, as Franklin Roosevelt said, you know, fear and fear itself. Wow. I mean, that's, that's something I would, you know, and on that note, you know, what lessons do you have? What, what lessons does this work have for modern America? You know, like what, what conclusions have you drawn for our modern world? Well, from a historiographical standpoint, um, I would argue that the field should be more mindful about continuities instead of making clean breaks. Um, when we talk about films of the 50s, for example, um, and in some respects, when people talk about films of the 50s, they mean the 60s. Right. Um, but that there should be an awareness that just because World War II ended does not mean that we are remaking the wheel, so to speak, that there are continuities in the past that we should be mindful of and that, you know, man is not learning to um, bring fire to the cave, you yeah. know, at, at the turn point of every decade. Um, and just, and for, for, in terms of film history, I guess one of the lessons that I wanted, that I got out of it was to think outside the canon. I mean, yeah. film history has this canon of post-World War II movies, um, best years of our lives, um, various film noir titles, um, yeah you know, the man in the gray flannel suit, those types of things. And that we should look at additional pictures and movies that um, succeeded or did not succeed. Um, you know, that there are hundreds of, Hollywood released hundreds of movies each year and um, that we should be mindful that there are, there are a lot of things out there that we can look at, that we can study and that um, we can learn from their successes and failures to become more fully cognizant of the time period. That is definitely where, um, as historians, we always sound that caution of alarm, right? Where we try very hard not to be the be all and end all of the topic or of that theme or, or what have you. Um, I think historians try very much <laughs> not to be, um, you know, you try, you, there's no such thing as objectivity, right? So you try very hard to constantly go back and reevaluate and you know reconsider even the conclusions that you've already drawn you might look at this project in five more years and be like you know maybe i missed something or maybe i should go back and add this piece in you know um i'm curious is there anything you want to have as a sequel peter this is a this is a quite an Im amazing effort any sequels maybe any follow-ups to this study 
Well, there are always there's always new movies to watch. I, I, <laughs> I mean, new for me anyway. That there these movies are of course you know 50, 60 years old now at this point, but they're new to me, and right. um, and I could always see connections between hey, this movie was released you know a month after this other movie that I already studied, and you could see connections. Um, there's always revisions are possible. I'm actually working on a prequel. Um, I'm looking at an earlier time period of the early 30s and late 20s. Um, right. You know, the, between um, the start of the stock market crash and, and the start of the Great Depression. So there, there's um, definitely continuity between there. Um, wow. I'm looking forward to your next effort, Peter. Um, sounds <laughs> like it's going to be a very fascinating study all over again. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> okay. Well, Peter, I just want to thank you for your time and thanks for sharing all these wonderful, wonderful conclusions and tidbits from your work. Um, I look forward to reading it in its entirety and I hope that your audiences are as well. Thank you, Patrice, and thank you for, for everything. Of course. You're welcome. Anytime. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online, shcy.org.